Uh, good morning, everyone. Uh, so please turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 19, verse 23. We are continuing this morning in our road trip series uh, by looking at Paul's third missionary journey. Uh, follow along with me. Uh, the text is also uh, going to appear up on the screen behind me. Acts chapter 19, verse 23. About that time, serious trouble developed in Ephesus concerning the way. It began with Demetrius, a silversmith who had a large business manufacturing silver shrines of the Greek goddess Artemis. He kept many craftsmen busy. He called them together, along with others employed in similar trades, and addressed them as follows. Gentlemen, you know that our wealth comes from this business. But as you have seen and heard, this man Paul has persuaded many people that handmade gods aren't really gods at all. And he's done this not only here in Ephesus, but, but throughout the entire province. Of course, I'm not just talking about the loss of public respect for our business. I'm also concerned that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will lose its influence and that Artemis, this magnificent goddess worshipped throughout the province of Asia and all around the world, will be robbed of her great prestige. At this, their anger boiled and they began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Soon the whole city was filled with confusion. Everyone rushed to the amphitheater, dragging along Gaius and Aristarchus, who were Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia. Paul wanted to go in too, but the believers wouldn't let him. Some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, also sent a message to him, begging him not to risk his life by entering the amphitheater. Inside, the people were all shouting, some one thing and some another. Everything was confusion. In fact, most of them didn't even know why they were there. The Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander forward and told him to explain the situation. He motioned for silence and tried to speak. But when the crowd realized he was a Jew, they started shouting again and kept it up for about two hours. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. At last, the mayor was able to quiet them down enough to speak. Citizens of Ephesus, he said. Everyone knows that Ephesus is the official guardian of the temple of the great Artemis, whose imi image fell down to us from heaven. Since this is an undeniable fact, you should stay calm and not do anything rash. You have brought these men here, but they have stolen nothing from the temple and have not spoken against our goddess. If Demetrius and the craftsmen have a case against them, the courts are in session and the officials can hear the case at once. Let them make formal charges. And if there are complaints about other matters, they can be settled in a legal assembly. I am afraid that we are in danger of being charged with rioting by the Roman government, since there is no cause for all this commotion. And if Rome demands an explanation, we won't know what to say. Then he dismissed them and they dispersed. My message this morning is this. The gospel might cause uproar, but God is still in charge. The gospel might cause uproar, but God is still in charge. Now, I don't know if you've ever found yourself in the middle of a big disturbance or an uproar. Uh, back in 1990, I was uh, traveling around India with a friend, and we were in a market in the southern part of India, in a city there. 
And we were just wandering around this market uh, when really suddenly, out of nowhere, there was this, all this chaos and energy and action uh, which ran through the crowd like electricity with people uh, diving off everywhere, suddenly rushing everywhere in a complete panic. A bull had got loose and it was charging round, chasing people. People ran in all directions and there was literally uproar as the owners tried to chase this bull through the streets and catch it. It was very exciting and very scary all at the same time. You would not believe the amount of energy people can find when they're confronted with something like that. Now, with this riot in Acts chapter 19, there is complete uproar. It's not about a bull getting loose, but about something much, much more significant. Demetrius the silversmith makes the case that the gospel of Jesus is offensive to the Greek god Artemis. And the result is uproar. Now, as a whole book... Acts is really a great series of sermons, followed by upheaval and uproar, as the kingdom of God is proclaimed and spiritual resistance of various types comes up to the surface in response. By the time of this riot in Ephesus, Saul has really dramatically swapped sides from rejecting Jesus, as we know, to becoming a follower of Jesus himself and going on mission. And in fact, this is all taking place during his third missionary journey. The Temple of Artemis was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, alongside the pyramids at Giza and the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. It was an amazing sight to behold, apparently. Here is what the temple looks like now. It's in modern-day Turkey, and you can, you can visit that uh, if you want to. Now, if we track carefully through what Demetrius says... It has very little to do with the worship of Artemis in reality. And it has everything to do with the money and the trade connected to all the worship. Notice how he uses these words as you go through and listen to what he says. He says business, manufacturing, silver, craftsmen, busy, employed, trades, wealth, business again, business for the third time, just in case you missed it, And then, lastly, and this is the absolute key word, he uses the word robbed. So in other words, Demetrius incites a riot because the change of worship brought by the arrival of the gospel is directly impacting what? It's directly impacting his bottom line, his income. Now, just before the passage that we looked at this morning, or we're looking at today, a number of people who had been involved in occult practices using scrolls worth literally millions in today's money, publicly burns these scrolls as part of repenting and turning to Jesus. So that's, that's the, the, the story immediately before this story. So that's a huge upheaval in the right direction towards God in response to the gospel. But this riot, however, is an upheaval in the wrong direction. It's against the word of God. Now, Having set all of that scene, I want to get into the core of what I believe God wants us to hear this morning from his word. I am really interested by the word rushed. The word rushed from Acts 19. It's an interesting word. Have you ever done one of these things where you look up a word in the Bible and you trace through to see where else it's used and God shows you something and a light goes on and you suddenly think, wow, I never saw that before. This was one of those moments for me, and I believe God's revealed that in order to share that with all of us this morning. 
So come along with me as we explore how the word rushed gets used. In Acts 19.29, it says this, Soon the whole city was filled with confusion. Everyone rushed to the amphitheater. Now this word, rushed, only gets used around three events in the New Testament. Three times. That's all, all, all that it gets used. And when you look at these events, the word seems to reveal three things that are very resistant to Jesus. In fact, they're big strongholds against God. So, what's a stronghold? A stronghold is something that is set up either as a physical place of strength or as a pattern of strength in thinking and behavior that is opposed to God. Now, in the Old Testament, if the people of Israel fell away from the Lord, they would often start worshiping different gods in high places up in the mountains. So, these were spiritual strongholds that were opposed to God physically located like up in a high place. Now, you know that song, uh, The Victor's Crown by Darlene Check, out of Hillsongs, don't you? Uh, that's a declaration of victory, of the victory of Jesus on the cross against all strongholds and against anything that tries to set itself up to be high as a rival to God. That's what that song's saying. So when those lyrics go, every high thing must come down, every stronghold, sh- stronghold shall be broken, you, and, this, and where she says this, she's referring to Jesus, you wear the victor's crown, Jesus, because you have overcome. Yes. You have overcome. That's what that song is all about. And so what she's saying in the song is that anything that se- sets itself up against the sovereignty and reign of Jesus is a high thing or a stronghold that must come down and Jesus must be up there instead. As the gospel goes out into all the world, there might well be uproar as strongholds become apparent, as we see in the case of this riot, but God remains in charge throughout, the whole time. All the high things are going to come down because Jesus is king over everything and has already overcome all opposition through what he did on the cross for us. So let's get into these three events where the word rushed gets used. The word for uh, rush in the Greek is, uh, in Acts 19, is hormao. And it gets used in the New Testament to describe this kind of sort of chaotic, destructive energy that sort of suddenly bursts out against the sovereignty of God. First time it gets used, in Acts chapter 7, rush is used to describe the sudden response of the Jewish religious leading council, that's the Sanhedrin, against Stephen. After he has preached his incredible sermon, telling them straight that they are just as stiff-necked and resistant to God as their ancestors. Remember that, remember that sermon. Remember that time when, when, when Stephen's speaking to them. And he, Acts 7 is this great long sermon. And he has this vision of Jesus standing in heaven. Now, I want to just point out to you that it's one of the only times uh, in the New Testament where Jesus is not described as sitting and how incredible is that to be doing something that would make Jesus actually stand in heaven? That's an awesome thing that Stephen does. But the Sanhedrin don't share Jesus' appreciation of Stephen. Oh, no. Instead, they rush at him. There's that word again. And they drag him off to do what they do to him, which is to stone him. And Saul supervises that. Second time, we get the word rushed. It's at this riot in Ephesus, and we've already seen that. The whole city is in an uproar, and, the, and there's people who have no idea 
What is going on? And they find themselves swept in this great tide of people into the stadium. Third time that the word rushed gets used. And this, I have to say, is a a sinister thing. It's also used to describe the stampede of the pigs down into the sea after Jesus casts the demon legion out of the man from the Gerasenes. Now, this word rushed is not used in any other setting but on these three occasions only. Now, I believe God's guided the use of this word very specifically by the Holy Spirit in the Bible to show us three strongholds that try to come against God. And these are, I think, the strongest of the strongholds that try and pitch themselves against the Lord. And they're these three things, religious, financial, and demonic. And they're shown in the table up on the screen for you. In the case of the Sanhedrin and Stephen, the stronghold is a religious stronghold. And by that, I mean a sort of dutiful, pious, bound-up self-effort that strives in its own strength to be kind of righteous. It's an attitude that sees itself as right in its own eyes and tends to to judge and, and kind of look down on other people. It's got very little to do with a proper inward heart connection to God from personal relationship. Being religious has no sense of personal brokenness or any real need for God. In the case of the riot in Ephesus, I believe that the stronghold is a financial one. You know, Demetrius is not concerned for one moment about Artemis, but he's very concerned to protect his income stream, isn't he? So I believe that environments in which money is pursued as the be-all and end-all, over time, they become spiritually very dry, very arid. God can't move there very easily. It's very difficult for him to do stuff. Uh, Colin Dye, the pastor of Kensington Temple down in London, talks uh, one time about coming back from mission in Africa and wondering why the spiritual receptiveness out there in Africa was so high compared with when he touched down at Heathrow Airport in London. He felt the difference. And he, he attributes that, or believes the cause of that spiritual dryness in London comes from its strong connection with those international financial markets that it's had for a long time. In the case of the man from the Gerasenes who was healed and set free by Jesus, the stronghold is openly demonic. Uh, The man is owned by a demon called Legion. Uh, Legion tells uh, Jesus his name that it means because we are many. Now, a Roman legion had around 5,000 soldiers in it, and if that's any indication of the number of spiritual entities who lived inside this man, you'll agree that that's easily a number that can jump into 2,000 pigs and make them rush down a hill. So how can we take steps to avoid those three strongholds? How can we make sure that we don't fall into the traps of being religious, being obsessed with cash, or being fascinated with the enemy? How do we do that? Let's go through some answers to that. First of all, we avoid getting into a religious stronghold by making sure that we relate to God from here, from our heart. Religiousness is the opposite of true relationship. It's dressed like relationship, but at its core, it's kind of a self, uh, sort of an empty self-performance without any true heart connection to God. And you notice that Jesus reserves his most stinging criticism for the religious leaders of his day. And in fact, at one point, he calls them whitewashed tombs, so all nice and white and kind of smart on the outside and, and dead and dingy on the inside. It's a really savage attack that he launches against the religious leaders. Religiousness is often about 
rules on the outside and sticking to those rules, and maybe even adding a few more rules just to show that you mean it, that for good measure. I was in a doctor's reception one time, and uh, this uh, sticking to the rules thing compared with the fact that this, I was a customer in front of this person uh, really kind of came home to me uh, when I had to fill in forms for my three boys, and we filled in all three of the forms uh, over and over again with the same information. So I started off with one, and then I sort of said, listen, can we just, you know, just cut to the chase and just do the bits that are different for the other two boys? He said, oh, no, no, I need to take you through that. And mechanically, we went through every last single bit on the form because that was the right thing to do. Oh, my goodness. That is a form of sticking to duty before relationship. We must build a personal relationship from God that comes from here, that comes from our hearts. You know, the biblical story that I feel best sums up uh, the two kinds of wrong relationship that we can slip into sometimes towards God. Uh, most of us fall into one of these two scenarios, if you like, is the parable of the prodigal son. The value of the parable of the prodigal son is that it shows us the two main ways in which our relationship with God can kind of fall off focus, if you like. It's either rebellion on the one hand, or it's religiousness on the other. And the two sons typify that, don't they? The younger son is a bit of a rebel. He goes off to a far-off land, and he blows his third of the inheritance. Now, many of us, I think, in the room can identify with some of the aspects of how the younger son maybe lived and then how we return to God, uh, perhaps in our own journey back to God. Um, up on the screen, there's a picture from a recent film based on the parable of the prodigal son called Wayward, uh, and that came out in 2014, and, and that's the scene where the son uh, gets reunited with his dad. Now, we often hear messages that focus on the younger son and how he returns to the Father God, and that's absolutely right and proper. But the older son sums up another equally faulty approach to God, and that is that religious, dutiful, I must, it's all about me trying effort kind of an approach. Now, I don't know if you've ever spotted this, but if you look at, we tend to read the parable of the prodigal son and go through the older son's responses like it's a casual conversation, don't we? And we sense, oh, it doesn't feel very good. But he says these things. And actually, if you pick through carefully and do the opposite of what the older son says, it's like a kind of instruction manual on avoiding being religious. It's, it's stunning, actually. There's some really great stuff in what the older son says, provided you do the opposite. Um, if you've got a phone, you might want to take a snap of this uh, next slide because it's got a lot of information on it. I'm not expecting you to absorb it all now, but I do think the value of it, I want to give it to you. I've also printed copies of this uh, next slide out, uh, and it's on the info point downstairs. Take one of these away next week and go through these things and make sure you're not going all religious on us, please. Uh, we've also posted this uh, as a, as a photograph on our Facebook page, and uh, that's available for you there too. Uh, and if you don't already like Birmingham City Church, why not? Come on, you need to. Like Birmingham City Church, and you'll get the photo there as well. So you might want to pray through the, some of these things and reflect on how you can avoid becoming religious, because the older son says a whole lot of stuff that if we do the opposite of it, it guards us against becoming religious. Let me, let me just take you through it. The older brother says, um, all these years I've slaved for you. Well, our heart attitude is, well, we shouldn't keep records of our own good deeds. Right. We mustn't do that. Right. 
You know, when you get your gift aid form at the end of the year, don't be thinking in your head like I did once. Oh, God, that's quite a lot of money I've given to the church. Now, if I work out how many years I've been a Christian, that's 17 years. Oh, look at that amount of money I've given. Wow, aren't I good? That is religion right there. We'll stop that. We don't keep a tally of the, the records of the good things that we've done. Number two, never once refuse to do a single thing. Well, that's a religious mindset. Instead, offer over and above joyfully from love. Number three, you've never even gave me one young goat. Well, excuse me, older son, you're not being very objective or truthful there because you've just had two-thirds of the inheritance. And you've forgotten about that in your little speech to your father. So we haven't really been strictly objective and honest there, have we? Young goat versus fattened calf. Well, that is classic religious mindset to do comparisons with another person. Well, God's given them more stuff. So, you know, I've just got this little poultry old goat going on here and you get this big calf. What's it all? You know, that is religion. We don't do that. Every person's journey with God is individual to them and God. Yet when this son of yours, see how he disowns his brother? Keep on including and inviting in. Never disown. Disowning is the religious mindset. Number six, comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes. Well, how about overlooking, forgiving, and being kind, and covering over, and never judging, and just leaving judgment to God? What about 1 Corinthians 13, which says, love is above everything else, and love is kind, and love covers over, and love, love is patient? And number seven, you celebrate by killing the fattened calf. Well, why don't you join in the celebration, you religious older brother, you? Because actually, why can't you celebrate with others when they receive good fortune and God's mercy? Jonah struggled with that, didn't he? He could not accept that the Ninevites might have had a break from God. And he went and sulked in the desert. Now, I appreciate that that is a lot to think about. And, and maybe, what I want, maybe what I'd suggest is grab that slide as a printout after the service Ponder these things through in your heart this week and ask yourself honestly, am I being religious? Because that, those are signs that your heart is hardening up a little bit towards God. You need to have a soft heart relationship towards God. Let's look at the uh, countering the issues that are obvious. The, sec the second one, in, in those issues that are obvious in Demetrius' life, the financial stronghold. Let's have a quick look at those. Jesus taught right down the line on this clearly that it's not possible to serve two masters at once. It's just not. Matthew 6, 24, Sermon on the Mount, he says, No one can serve two masters, for you will hate one and you'll love the other. You'll be devoted to one, despise the other. You cannot serve God and be enslaved to money. Let's imagine together that our task uh, as a church is to win Demetrius the silversmith to our number, to the Lord. Now, some of us in the room here, we would pray for him, wouldn't we? We would pray that his heart would become receptive to God and he would stop worshipping his business interests. And that's absolutely right. And actually, that is your starting point. With anyone that you're wanting to come into the kingdom, start in prayer. And then some of us would evangelize to him, wouldn't we? And hopefully, we would win him into God's kingdom as a new follower of Jesus. And then some of us would disciple him. And as part of that... We would recommend, hey, Demetrius, why don't you come on BCC's Fresh Finances Discipleship course so that you can learn God's way of handling your resources. And you could learn it with God's kingdom in view. Now, Fresh Finances is a stewardship course 
have to say, par excellence. It is really, really good. Where we explore godly principles for managing all our resources. It helps us understand why stewardship is so important to the way we look after the things and the money that God has given us. And it leads us to freedom and health in those areas. You know, it makes sense that the better you steward your resources, the better you can extend God's kingdom. That makes lots of sense, doesn't it? Did you know that 16 out of the 38 parables uh, in the Gospels are to do with money and possessions? That's nearly 50%. And across the whole Bible, there are about 2,000 verses on money and possessions, and less than half of that, less than 1,000, on prayer and faith together. And yet somehow we don't really pay the same ratio of, dis- of attention to stewardship. And I think that that's not right. I think we should. Up on the screen, there should be a, a picture of some kids uh, getting an education and having fun uh, in a school through a sponsorship scheme that works because Christians steward their money effectively. As, now, our heart as pastors here at BCC is that everyone who comes to BCC does the Fresh Finances course. Now, there's a sign-up sheet uh, available at the info point if you're interested, and we'll contact you about when our next one is. Here's another thing. You might be really interested to hear this morning that Birmingham City Council wants to work with local churches to make the CAP money course available to everyone on benefits. Now, CAP stands for Christians Against Poverty, and they are a proper evangelical Christian charity whose heart is to see people one to the Lord. And the way they go about it is by offering really great counsel and support to get you out of debt. And their CAP money course is all about sensible budgeting. Thousands and thousands of non-Christians have been helped by CAP, and lots and lots of people who have been helped by uh, CAP actually start following Jesus and become Christians for themselves. Now, here's the deal. We are not able to manage all the classes we are likely to be getting for that. We're not. And I'm going to make a direct appeal to you this morning that we need some people who can help us teach that material. In other words, BCC needs some instructors who can teach the CAP Money course content on behalf of Birmingham City Council. And if you'd like to be considered to become an instructor and learn how to deliver that material and how to teach the CAP Money course, we have another sign-up sheet for you downstairs. Uh, The info point is going to be busy this morning, I think. The last stronghold is demonic. Now, the best response against anything demonic is that we are simply willing to submit ourselves to the sovereignty of God. That is the best response you can give to anything off of the enemy that comes towards you. You know, I think there's there's four kinds of responses that go on around the enemy, around the demonic. The first one is that you are aware of him, but you don't pay him much attention. You know what he's capable of, but you don't give him airtime. He doesn't have space in your life. And that's, that's healthiest, I think. The second position you might have with the enemy is that you're on a bit of a tipping point. You're thinking about something that you know you shouldn't do, but you're toying with it in your mind. That's called a tipping point, and it's dangerous because it could lead you down a path where the enemy has more influence. And that's the third point, which is that the enemy actually has influence. And it's not just a one-off. In an area of your life, he starts to repeatedly have influence over you. And that can happen even to Christians. Just because you're a Christian doesn't mean you have like a kind of protective shell all around you. The enemy can still influence you from the side. The the fourth and the most dangerous position is that you are owned by the devil. Now, we sometimes dramatically talk about, you know, satanic possession or something like that. But possession is merely ownership, isn't it? 
And this man who was in the Gerasenes, he was owned by the enemy. But here's the thing. At every stage, Jesus has the power to overcome. He does. And in each case, we can, what we can do about it is the same. We turn towards Jesus. Now, I need a couple of uh, volunteers to help me with an illustration, if I may. I need a couple of people. Jane, would you mind being a volunteer? Is that all right? Alicia, could you come and be a volunteer? Just quickly. Now, um, I'm not saying you're the devil at all, but if you could be the devil just for a moment in my illustration, that'd be great. Thanks, Alicia. We all love you, and you're not the devil, but for the sake of the drama here, is that all right? And Jane, can you be Jesus? Is that okay? All right? So this is the typical scenario of how you respond to the enemy. When the enemy starts giving you all this, what you do is you simply turn and you face Jesus. And you give the devil your back because he's on the losing side. Why do we give the devil any space? He's on the losing side and we turn to the person who wears the victor's crown always, don't we? Thank you. Thank you very much. Here's a great way to discern how to tell the difference between those two things. Most of us know how to do that already, but just in case you didn't, the devil will call you by your sin. Jesus will call you by your name. The devil will call you by your sin, but Jesus will call you by your name. Whenever the devil tempts you or tries to bring you down by calling out your sins, turn your back on him and turn towards Jesus. I'm going to ask George and the worship team if you would just come and start playing. And actually, let's all stand together. Let's all stand together. And we're going to respond in a particular way this morning. So we've seen out of the events of Paul's third missionary journey, we've seen three powerful strongholds. And they're revealed to us in God's word, linked, to, linked together in the New Testament by this word, rushed. First of all, we've seen how doing the opposite of what the older brother tells us in the parable of the prodigal son is like a manual for avoiding getting religious. Go through and do all the opposite things to what the older brother says and you will stay soft to God and you will avoid being religious. We've seen, secondly, the trap of falling into worshipping finance that Demetrius fell into with his silver shrines he was making. But we've seen the response to that is how if we get into a godly stewardship of our resources... We can keep that stronghold of worshipping cash in its place. And there's some practical things you can do about that. You can sign up for Fresh Finances. You can sign up to be a cap money instructor. We'd really like for you to do that. We had quite a few people respond on that in the first service. And I really hope a few more will do from this service as well. And lastly, we have seen that a great way to respond to the enemy is to turn to Jesus. Turn to the one wearing the victor's crown. Why pay any attention to the losing side? Who does that? I'm sure that the journey of the man in the Gerasene, uh, in the Gerasenes towards that demonic influence was probably not instant. It was probably a, a sequence of things where he kept on giving more and more permission. But we always have the capacity to turn to Jesus, people. We always do. In thinking about how, I, how we should respond today to, to this message about strongholds, Rather than having a riot and rushing in this horrible anti-God energy somewhere, do you know what I think we should do? I actually think we should worship Jesus all together down at the front. I think we should quietly make our way, come and quietly make your way to the front just as we start to sing. And let's all sing down here and in a big crowd, an orderly crowd, under submission to Jesus because he's the king.